for example, with IBS, one thing that I talk a lot about with my clients and even like online and everything is that the stress and the anxiety and the effect that that actually has on your symptoms is huge. If there's anything that's claiming to be a cure-all, you know it's ridiculous. Like that, if we had a cure-all, wouldn't we all be doing it? Everyone, when we talk about gut health, everyone wants to talk about supplements and powders and potions and everything like that. But fiber and plant-based foods in our diet is the most important thing for supporting a good and healthy gut. Hey guys, I'm Alex Davies, Features Editor at Women's Health Australia, and welcome to the latest episode of Women's Health Uninterrupted. I'm excited about today's guest because while she's all about BS-free advice, she isn't afraid to talk shit. As a dietitian and nutritionist with a focus on digestive health, Marika Day is here to educate and raise awareness about the gut. The timing couldn't be better, really. Stats suggest that half of us complain of a digestive problem in any 12-month period. One in five Aussies struggle with irritable bowel syndrome, with women twice more likely to be affected than men. The gut has become one of the biggest areas in the wellness world, with bloating positivity, now a social media movement, people knocking back kombucha, and everyone from Kayla at Cena's to Carly Kloss talking about gut health. Bill Gates is even investing in probiotic research. But where does the hype end and the reality begin? And what steps will actually help you look after your gut? Here to answer all this and more, Marika Day. Marika, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So we're recording this. We were just talking before when you were coming in. The day after City to Surf, which is this mm. kind of big Sydney running event, it's 14K. So huge congrats to anyone listening who ran or who walked that yesterday and I hope you're pulling up all right today. And um, we were talking about how I think you were there supporting some friends, but you weren't able to run this year because of injury. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I was super sad this year that I wasn't able to run because I'd signed up and everything. And then last minute, my physio told me not to do it. So very disappointing. But next year? Next year, for sure. I had <laughs> I serious FOMO. <laughs> it always looks like such a fun event. Like I've never done that one before but back over the last few years I've done a couple of 10ks and I always remember thinking right how do I eat do I have all the pasta the night before do I eat breakfast do I not and as a dietitian I'm going to ask you what do you do like what's your kind of advice for eating around a run like that or any sort of run really yeah so when it comes to runs like that you don't necessarily need to carb load in the sort of scientific sense where you're building up your carbohydrate intake over periods you know days and days um, but sometimes it can feel much better just to have a bigger carb meal the night before just so that your glycogen stores, so the carbohydrate in your muscles is, I guess, at a higher capacity so that you've got more to run with. Um, but having a meal that you're not used to is probably not a good idea as well. So if you're not you know, a typical pasta eater or something like that, going out for a big creamy pasta the night before <laughs> may not end well. It's not the time to try and trust something for the first time. No. <laughs> so a higher carbohydrate meal might be useful, but don't go for something that you're not used to. And then what about brekkie and stuff on the day? Do you just do what feels right for you? Yeah, again, don't do something that you're not used to. Mm. Um, so if you've never tested a certain food or anything before, the thing I find with like City to Surf, it's a bit of a later start. So I think some of the running groups aren't starting until sort of 9.30, whereas other fun runs that I've been part of, you know, you might be starting at six or seven o'clock in the morning. Um, so at nine o'clock, you've got time to have something decent, you know, hours before, which is a advantage of having a later start with that run. Mm. I remember like years ago <laughs> doing a 10K and the night before I just like I was saying, I didn't really know what to do, what to eat. So I was like, right, okay, 
protein pasta. And I had like a steak and pasta. And I was like, I never would have that randomly in a competition <laughs> before. And lo and behold, I felt pretty rough for it the next morning. So Yeah, so I always say competition days are never a time to start something new or try something new. Always go with what you've tried before. And if you want to try something new, try it in your training in the yeah. lead up so that you know that it's going to sit well with you in terms of your gut as well. Speaking of gut health, which obviously we're going to be covering heaps and heaps today, but I've got to ask you because I think as every runner and a lot of exercisers know, runner's gut is so real. Um, and the idea that you kind of can get, you know, caught up with digestive symptoms and things as you're running or exercising, you know, what's kind of going on there? What actually causes that? And have you got any kind of strategies that could save us? Yeah. So I actually posted about this on Instagram last <laughs> week because it was something that I just assumed everyone knew about. But when I started talking about it, everyone was like, oh, what is, what's that? Or, you know, people were like, oh, can you please talk about this more? Because I guess there is still a bit of a stigma around talking about some gut issues, um, in particular, embarrassing ones like runner's gut. Yeah. Um, what essentially happens with that is that sometimes when we run at or even just do exercise at a high intensity, we experience gut symptoms and most commonly that is diarrhea or the um, urgency to go to the bathroom. Um, so it can be quite embarrassing and I'm sure most people would have seen, you know, marathon runners and everything with ha- having accidents with that. Um, what's going on there? We don't really know the specific details. There's sort of a few things that could be going on there is that, you know, there's food that hasn't been digested properly, like we we're saying from the night before or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, the other thing that can be happening is with excessive exercise. So, you know, when you're running a marathon, you can get a bit of ischemia in your gut, which is where essentially blood flow is not coming to your gut because the blood flow is going everywhere else in your body. Um, and so your gut sort of switches down, shuts down, sorry, um, when you're running. And so it can just evacuate everything that's in there or have the urgency to do it. Um, there's other, some other sort of systems there at play as well with like the nervous system just redirecting, you know, blood flow and nervous system activity away from the gut as well. So super interesting, but a bit complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you recommend? Is there like kind of, I don't know, like you were saying certain foods you've got to be cautious of or certain things you can do just to make yourself feel a bit, you know, kind of more in control in that sense? Yeah. So in terms of what we can do, um, there's a couple of different strategies. So first and foremost, like I was saying before, is make sure you have tested what you're going to eat um, before you do a competition. Mm. Um, but having low fiber foods in the lead up to a big competition can be beneficial just to reduce the amount of um, fiber going through the gut. The other thing is there was a really interesting paper that came out, uh, I think it was this year or last year, looking at the low FODMAP diet in the lead up to competition as well. Um, so reducing the fermentable carbohydrates within the diet in the days before just so that, again, there's not as much fermentable carbohydrates sitting there in the gut. Um, The other thing, and I'm not sure what the research says on this, but I personally find that the more exposure that I have to like running or high-intensity activity, the better better tolerance my gut has essentially. Mm. So when I went for a long period of time without running and then got back into running, I was finding that I was literally racing home (laughs) and straight through the front door. But as I got fitter, it wasn't happening as frequently. So I think, yeah, the, the higher your heart rate, or like I said, this is just what I experienced, the higher my heart rate was going and the harder the run, the more likely I was to be racing back in the front door. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of the day, there's always pit stops, there's always toilet stops bathroom paper in the yes. in the bag or whatever you need so yeah and that's another thing if you if you do experience it and you sort of are struggling to control it is to look at your running map and everything like that and plan 
you're running around bathrooms and everything because it, it's so common and it does happen to everyone. So don't feel embarrassed about it and um, try and plan around it as well. Yeah. And then I guess obviously you touched on it briefly, but this idea of, you know, there are still some slightly taboo kind of things around gut health and the way we feel about it. And I just think it's the most interesting topic like in the health space because I feel like a few years ago you can never imagine any of us really talking about gut health the way we do and and then now we're all obsessed with it. Like I have quite a tricksy stomach, for example, and I feel like me and my friends, we all have various different issues and we all talk about it over brunch and dinner and like, <laughs> things like that. And I'm like, how is this, have we got to this point? And, you know, celebrities posting about it. It's this billion dollar industry. Like gut health is like this really cool thing. And like obviously in your career now, like what kind of shift have you seen, I guess? Yeah, poo chats become cool. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's it. That's the quote of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess the shift is that, yeah, it has become much more trendy. And I think there's sort of uh, positives and negatives to this situation as well is because what happens when something comes to light in the general public is that we do have people coming out of the, the darkness um, in terms of what's going on for them, which is fantastic because more people are getting, you know, their issues sorted because they're not feeling any stigma around seeking help for that. The other thing that happens here, though, is that we start to focus more on what's going on and we can start to be a bit nitpicky with our symptoms as well. Um, so, for example, there is normal levels of bloating. There is normal um, changes in your bowels and all of those sorts of things. And when gut health is such a big trend as at, like it is at the moment, we start to sort of analyse that and go, oh, maybe something's wrong when it might just be a normal sort of expression of your gut that, you know, is changing from day to day and everything like that. And we start to pathologize normal things as well. So there's sort of positives and negatives, I think, to something coming to such light. Because within the realm of normal, there's so much fluctuation there. And mm. that's from person to person. But then also within yourself, you'll have weeks where, you know, you might have a week where your bowels are just off a little bit and there's nothing wrong. It's just that you something's changed and it will go back to normal next week. Um, so I think that, yeah, like I said, it's positives and negatives to that. Do you think more of us are struggling with gut? kind of issues than we used to? Do you think that's what's driven the conversation a bit or what's going on? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting to think about this because I think there's a few things that have driven the conversation is probably the biggest one is the increase in research in the area. So we've been able to dive much deeper into the gut microbiome with, um, I guess, advances in technology looking at the gut microbiome. So it's become much more easy to test, you know, what's going on, uh, what sort of bacteria we have, um, how our DNA is affecting that and all sorts of different things there. So I think that's probably been the biggest driver of it. Um, and we still have so far to go in terms of research around the gut microbiome and gut health. Um, but yeah, then I guess the media picking up on it as well. So as soon as something comes out in the research more and more, the media pick up on it. And then once the media pick up on it, then the general public pick up on it. So I think that's probably been the biggest driver. Um, and then once the media have picked up on it, we start talking about it more and more in terms of um, the average person is talking about it. So the more you talk about it to your friends, the more your friends talk about it to their friends, and then we have a massive trend. Yeah. <laughs> I remember interviewing someone a while ago, like a researcher in gut health, and she said it's a bit of a phenomenon almost that if to have something hyped and so much excitement around it when the research is still very much ongoing and in its infancy. Mm. So they're going alongside each other. And often that while that's a really exciting thing that we're all getting caught up in the waves of excitement – that actually that means that the hype can sometimes run away with itself a little bit and the marketing of products and things yep. like that ahead of the actual 
what the research is telling us. Yeah, know? and I definitely think that's where gut health is at the moment is that the the products, the messaging and everything like that is well in advance of what we've got from a science perspective to back that up. So the the science is around gut health is really in its infancy um, and we are so uh, – we don't know essentially is the answer to so many questions around gut health. And what I always say is that, you know, if somebody is telling you definitive things around gut health, around, you know, taking this or doing that, it's so unknown at the moment that that's probably not the most correct thing to be saying. And then for you, obviously working in this nutrition space, what actually encouraged you to focus on or make one of your focuses gut health and digestive health? Yeah, so I have celiac disease myself. So I think that that definitely had an impact. My father is also a colorectal surgeon. So oh, I've grown up with a lot of um, poo chat at the dinner table. <laughs> it's always been normal for you. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is I actually, I didn't want to get into, well, not that I didn't want to, I didn't really think about it, um, getting into that area when I first started as a dietitian, but I sort of fell into it. I was working in a um, private hospital in the outpatient clinic and they ran a pelvic pain um, group and pelvic pain clinic and as part of that they referred you know their pain clients to me and I didn't really know what to do with pelvic pain and nutrition and so I just sort of the, the people would come in and I'd sort of be like okay well you know what's going on for you and it was always sort of IBS style symptoms so I just started addressing it you know, as I knew how to address IBS. And yeah, I guess that's how I fell into it is that that was just what was showing up at my clinic. (laughs) Um, And I sort of realized how interesting it was and yeah, dived into it so much further now. (laughs) And then you mentioned you have celiac disease yourself. And can you maybe outline a bit for us what that is and also how it impacts you, your work, how you approach things? Yeah. So I was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2008. So a while ago now, um, celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. Um, so it's not like a food allergy or, or intolerance. It's actually an autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself in the presence of gluten. So when you consume gluten, essentially your immune system kicks in and starts attacking itself and actually uh, degrades the lining of the small intestines. Um, so really important if you have celiac disease to obviously avoid gluten for the rest of your life and quite strictly avoid gluten. In terms of the impact that it has on my life, um, I'm so used to it now that I would say that the impact is quite minimal. It's just what I do in terms of avoiding gluten now. It's it's not something that I really think twice about. There is still times when I'm super frustrated by it when I'm at a bakery or something like that and just want some fresh bread. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it's so part of my life right now that it's, it honestly doesn't seem like a struggle that often anymore. What do you find, like, I guess – because um, so I've got a friend who's celiac too, and I think she gets frustrated because there's this real anti-gluten movement at the yes. moment, and which is, from what I understand, so not really warranted. And, you know, what's your kind of feeling as, you know, obviously as a dietitian, but as someone who actually needs to avoid yeah. gluten <laughs> about this whole kind of movement that's going on? Yeah. So, it's, again, there's positives and negatives to this. The, the thing is that you don't have to avoid gluten if you, you know, don't have celiac disease or it's not causing you any, you know, there's no reason to avoid it, then it's actually healthy to include, you know, gluten-containing whole grains in your diet. Um, The positives to people just avoiding gluten in general means that there has been a massive shift in like products towards like marketed that are gluten-free, um, which is obviously advantageous for someone with celiac disease is that we have so much more products that are gluten-free and labeled gluten-free now. 
Um, but it can be frustrating at times because <laughs> I would eat gluten if I could. <laughs> and it's like, why are you doing this when I can't have eat it? The bread. <laughs> please do it for me. <laughs> I can't eat that. Can someone else please do it? Do you find that like having um, a condition like that yourself, does it bring a certain, I guess, extra level of understanding when you're working with patients and things like that because you kind of understand what it's like to really have to think about your diet in that kind of way? and. Yeah, and particularly from like a food anxiety perspective. So when you first get diagnosed with celiac disease, and I think some people do experience it for a long time afterwards, it was definitely at least a few years for me. Um, going out creates so much anxiety around food because you don't want to make a big deal about yourself when you're eating out. And it's, it's embarrassing. You just want a meal that you can eat without having to be like, oh, excuse me, um, can you <laughs> do this for me? And I can't do that. Or oh, can you make sure this? And you just feel like a pain in the ass. So hopefully we can swear. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you find that's like, you know, because I think a lot of people have that for different reasons, like whether you're, you know, got an intolerance or an allergy or a any sort of gut concerns mm. or anything like that, you know, what's your kind of, how do you approach that now? Like what's your kind of, if someone, for example, is coming to this new and really feeling this anxiety around going out and things, how do you approach it? Yeah, and again, I guess having the experience of that is it's really hard to explain what to do about it because you feel that way regardless. And I don't know whether anything sort of comforts you in that. And the only thing I can sort of say to people is that it will get better with time but also to be confident in that you're not a pain in the ass and that you have a medical condition that requires you to do this and people are not typically, you know, cruel about it or anything like that. No one thinks that you are, you know, annoying or anything like that when you're doing it for a medical purpose. Nobody is judging you for that at all. So I think that's the best advice I can give there is just to be confident in asking. Um, Don't be afraid about you know, making a slightly bigger deal about it. Um, and maybe even if you are super, um, I guess, anxious about doing it is to call ahead to restaurants and those sorts of things and just double check beforehand. That's what I used to do. Or go online and check out the menus and those sorts of things before just so that if you're doing it in the presence of others and you feel like you're going to be making a big deal um, and you don't want to, then you've sort of done your research beforehand. So that's what I – and I, I still do that to this day. So I'll always look up, you know, menus online and stuff before I go, although yeah. I think that's kind of normal now. <laughs> <laughs> we want to plan and think about what we're having in a few hours' time. It's so true. And I guess as well, like something I definitely found was when I would get – one of my big things, I get really anxious when I would go out for a meal maybe or even – like on like a long car journey or a public transport or anything like that. And I think, oh, God, like what if I feel unwell, I need the bathroom, and I feel embarrassed in front of the people I was with or whatever. And actually then when I found I started being a bit more open with my friends, my family, and my partner even, and just saying, oh, you know, actually I need the bathroom because I don't feel very well. And everyone's mm. like, oh, yeah, cool. And it's just so not a big deal. And everyone probably has a story or experience of their own or someone they know. And actually as soon as you start to realize it's less of a big deal, your anxiety settles so much more with that, I think. And with something like irritable bowel syndrome, that makes a massive difference in terms of the symptoms that you actually then get because it's a bit different for celiac disease, but with irritable bowel syndrome, anxiety itself can trigger your symptoms. So if you're anxious about a meal and you go out, you're much more likely to get, you know, the runs or bloating or something like like some sort of symptom response, symptomatic response. 
if you're anxious. Whereas if you remove that anxiety, then you can absolutely like sort of calm down the gut-brain axis and that communication between the gut and the brain and potentially prevent the symptom itself. And I see this in clinic all the time with people who've got high anxiety around eating out. If we can reduce that anxiety around eating out, we almost get rid of the symptoms as well. Yeah, it's so powerful. Yeah, Yeah, so powerful. So talk to me a bit about what we can do to support our gut health. What are some of the key strategies that you wish we all knew? Yeah. So number one is that fiber is king and nobody (laughs) likes to talk about this. Everyone, when we talk about gut health, everyone wants to talk about supplements and powders and potions and everything like that. But fiber and plant-based foods in our diet is the most important thing for supporting a good and healthy gut. So I guess, and it also um, comes down to what you define as a healthy gut as well, because we've got a healthy gut in terms of a good thriving gut microbiome. So lots of beneficial bacteria in our gut. Um, And then we have a symptom-free gut as well. So they can be two different things, but they can also be the same thing as well. Um, So yeah, fiber is absolutely number one. So making sure that we're including lots of different plant-based foods. There was a paper that came out uh, last year, I think it was, and it was talking about um, strategies to improve your gut microbiome so that you've got the most beneficial bacteria in your gut. And the practical strategy out of that is to aim for about 30 different plant varieties every week. Oh, wow. Okay. So So I think that's a really practical, like practical strategy for people to look at. And, you know, different plants is like, you know, fruits, veggies, nuts, seeds, whole grains. So when you look at the sort of spectrum of different like fruits and vegetables and, you know, seeds and those sorts of things that you can include, it's not, it sounds like a lot 30 when you sort of say it up front, when you sort of break it down and you go, okay, in a salad, you might be able to get 10 different ingredients into a salad or into a stir fry or something like that. It can become much more easy, but yeah, having a variety of fiber types is one of the most important things for good gut health. Because the fibre's cool thing, actually, because I feel like we have these ideas and these stereotypes in our head of what is a fibre-containing food. Yes. Actually, there are so many surprising ones, aren't there, I think? Yeah. Well, if you go back to plants, like most unrefined plants are going to be a good source of fibre. So like I said, like any of your whole grains, your nuts, your seeds, and your fruits and vegetables, they're all going to contain fibre at some varying degree. Um, the other thing is like your skins of your fruits and vegetables and those sorts of things is where a lot of the fiber is um, most of the time. So, you know, if you're peeling your apples and those sorts of things, you can be missing out on a lot of fiber as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And then what other kind of stuff can we do? So the other things that you can do is um, fermented foods can be really beneficial. The research around this is, again, in its infancy. So we sort of don't really know what effect this might have, but including fermented foods or live cultured foods on a regular basis is looking like it will be something that is um, going to be good for your gut. Um, so things like uh, live yogurts, kefir, kimchi, um, sauerkraut, um, kombucha, those sorts of things uh, are a good thing to include on a regular basis. Um, some of the other things that are, I guess, really big predictors of the gut microbiome are things to exclude. So things like moderate alcohol consumption, um, avoiding smoking, Um, The other really interesting one is stress is, you know, whether it's physical stress, like, you know, running marathons and those sorts of things or um, psychological stress that can actually influence our gut microbiome as well. And then there's so much that feeds into the stress side of things, I guess, because then everything from exercise to sleep to your relationships can all influence your stress. Inadequate energy intake, so not eating enough, dieting, those sorts of things. (laughs) And then obviously loads of us have heard about probiotics. I know I take one. Um, there's been this big focus on that and also more recently prebiotics as well. And, yes. you know, talk to me a bit about that because are they 
is that a case of where the hype's gone beyond the research or are they both good things to include in your kind of diet? And- yeah, so I, I guess the probiotics um, comes down to the fermented foods as well in terms of the, they're quite similar there, but probiotics contain the specific strains of different bacteria. Um, and I guess in terms of taking a probiotic supplement, the research – sorry, the um, – the marketing and all of that is much further ahead than what the research is. When it comes to probiotic supplements, what we sort of need to do is look at which strains are you taking for what purposes and be quite strain specific in the bacteria that you're taking for whatever purpose it is. So for example, for IBS, you know, these strains have been proven in science to be somewhat effective. Um, from an anecdotal sort of point from like in my clinic and, and whatnot, what I find with probiotics is that it is quite hit and miss in terms of whether it's actually going to improve, even if the research is showing, you know, these strains are great for IBS, whether that actually translates into somebody's symptoms of IBS improving, it's not, you know, you take this and, and your IBS is gone, it's unfortunately. Not a no. Thing, no. <laughs> um, so I definitely think that yeah, the marketing for probiotics is so far ahead of what we're actually at in terms of um, the science. And so then in terms of recommendations, I don't recommend that everyone takes a probiotic. Again, there's likely no harm in taking probiotics. We don't have any research showing that there's any harm. So if you want to spend the money on them, then that's fine. Um, but I wouldn't f- – I would never f- – for somebody to feel obliged to do so um, or spend their money on that if it, they don't find that it's it's giving them a benefit. One thing I always do say, though, is if you're taking something like that, do it for a period of time, stop it for a period of time and see what the difference is. Is there okay. a benefit for you to take it? Okay, cool. And then how about prebiotics? Because that's the new one that everyone's really excited about, right? Yeah, so uh, I find prebiotics even more funny because prebiotics you can get from so many foods so easily. So why would we take a supplement for this when it's just so readily available in food? So things like onion, garlic, leeks, um, oats, uh, your legumes, there's so many foods that contain prebiotics. And pretty much with everything in nutrition, if we can get it from food, it's usually more beneficial than if we isolate it. So with prebiotics, why get it from a supplement that you have to pay $60 for when you can get it from legumes, which you pay like $2 a kilo for? <laughs> um, so I definitely would say go back to food for your prebiotics. And it's a type of fiber, isn't it? Is that the thing that prebiotics, they feed your good bacteria? Is that right? Yeah. So prebiotics are essentially the food for the bacteria in your gut. So without prebiotics in your diet, or I guess without fiber in your diet, you're not feeding the gut microbiome. And it can mean that it sort of gets starved and dies off a little bit as well. Okay, cool. And then on the flip side, I know your whole approach is about, you know, cutting through the BS and kind of any confusing messages and things. What kind of things should we not? Do we not need to do for our gut health? Are there certain things that you read and you see and advice, and you're like face palm? That's yes. you don't need to do that to help your gut. So, and this is where I would say specialized like gut health supplements and those. There's so many of those coming out now. Is you don't need to be taking some sort of supplement to improve your gut health. Um, there is supplements, like I said, like you know, there is strains of probiotics that might be beneficial in IBS. Fiber supplements might be beneficial for people who can't get in or struggle to get in enough fiber. But those sort of generic marketed, you know, this will heal your leaky gut or you know whatever supplements. That is just so unnecessary um, and, again, so expensive and sort of, I guess, preying on people who are suffering to give them a quick fix, which is not going to help them in in the long run. So um, that is probably one of the big ones. The other thing is 
probably excluding food groups unnecessarily. So um, I guess the common ones that come up with um, gut health is um, animal products altogether. So having to go like completely vegan, um, dairy and gluten are probably the biggest um, yeah things that people demonize when it comes to gut health. And there is some warrant behind like, you know, some people are lactose intolerant and that does obviously affect their gut and they will need to reduce, go to lactose free products or get rid of their dairy products. Um, some people do have gluten sensitivities, but I find that there's a lot of messages around there saying that if you have gluten or if you have dairy or if you have red meat, for example, it means you're going to have a bad gut. And that's not true whatsoever. There's so much in the wording of these things yeah exactly well, it's the it? context yeah. like you know it's the research is taken so far out of context it's like okay you know in this population gluten's not great or in this population dairy's not great for the gut but that doesn't mean it's the same for everyone and i remember this the whole thing recently as well which i think you've posted about before so i wanted to ask you about it but this kind of thing going around that you know celery juice is gonna cure your gut and there's like <laughs> these cure-all kind of things and you know what's your kind of take on that for anyone who's like out there juicing a load yeah. of celery at the moment <laughs> if there's anything that's claiming to be a cure you know it's ridiculous like that if we had a cure-all wouldn't we all be doing it like we would no one would be dying no one would be fat like no one would have any diseases so if there was a cure-all everyone would know about it um but yeah when it comes to celery juice I find it it's so ridiculous because when we come back to where it came from there's no scientific understanding of where it came from because it came from the medical medium who is a guy that speaks to spirits to get his nutrition advice like it's it's not nutrition is science and that's not science (laughs) so if it's again if it's helping you in some way then that's fine it's it's celery juice it's not likely going to do any harm but don't promote it as something that has you know scientific benefits to curing diseases or anything like that because some vulnerable person is going to avoid getting the treatment that they need for whatever it is because they were told that this was the way that they should do it Mm. and somebody will eventually die from that, which I think is so sad. And there's something we touched on earlier, I guess, is that big connection between the gut and the brain that is such a big focus of research at the moment. Can you kind of tell us a bit what's going on there, what kind of things seem to be coming out and why that's such a cool, interesting area at the moment? Yeah, so the gut and the brain are constantly communicating. So like every second or probably more frequently than that as well. Um, And we have a nervous system that's specific to our gut as well. So there is so much communication between our gut and our brain. And the reason why I think it's so interesting is because it's not just that the brain is influencing the gut, but the gut is influencing the brain as well. It's this bi-directional communication. So, like a highway going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, highway talking back from the br- the the butt. <laughs> that too. <laughs> so much <laughs> Um But yeah, this bi-directional communication there. So I guess in terms of um, gut health, then it sort of opens up a whole new area of research and a new. Um, way that we can look at whether we're modulating the brain or the gut, we can look at, you know, both of those aspects there. So for example, with IBS, one thing that I talk a lot about with my clients and even like online and everything is that the stress and the anxiety and the effect that that actually has on your symptoms is huge. And people don't take that into account when they have, you know, IBS is that if we're not addressing our stress levels or our anxiety, then we probably are never going to get completely complete control over our symptoms. And people don't like to – I guess that people want a quick fix. They want a supplement that's going to fix their IBS, whereas addressing stress and anxiety 
is so much more complex. It's Such so a big much, picture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the effects that it does have if you're willing to do the work is so profound. What do you find are some strategies that work for people in that sense, kind of helping them ease their anxiety? So there was actually um, a paper last year, Australian paper, that looked at um, yoga and compared that to the low FODMAP diet for um, irritable bowel syndrome and it was just as effective as the low FODMAP diet, which has been proven to be quite effective um, for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and, yeah, yoga, I think it was three times a week, uh, 90 minutes maybe, um, was just as effective. So things that are going to essentially – calm your nervous system down can have an effect on then your gut nervous system and that hypersensitivity that we see with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, But things like meditation um, and I guess looking at what is stressing you and what your what control you can have over those stresses. And if you can't have control over your stresses, then what are your outlets for managing your stress? And I think that's something that nobody is is sort of thinking about these days is what are we doing for fun and for pleasure and I ask my clients that all the time like what are your hobbies and the amount of blank faces and you know I'd probably do the same if someone asked me (laughs) but the amount of blank faces I get when I say you know what do you do for fun like what's your downtime relaxation like not you know scrolling social media or anything like that like what is it that you do for fun like purely fun not going to the gym because that's you know health and fitness related as well What's fun? And people are just like, oh. It makes you really reflect, though, to be fair, because I'm just like, oh my God, like, what are my hobbies? And yeah. it's funny, but they, like, you have, I feel like as a kid, like, you know, we were talking earlier with our producer, our lovely producer, Dennis, about his daughter being sporty and at sports carnivals and things. And I feel like as a child, you have so many hobbies and different things yep. you get into, like arts and crafts or whatever. And then as an adult, maybe they ease away a bit because life gets busy and things Mm. like that. And And I don't know whether this is just in my situation, but I find that guys are so much better at this. Like my partner, he's into like motorbikes and he's into surfing and spearfishing and all of these sorts of things. I'm like, wow. And like all of his mates are as well. And, and then I look at all of myself, myself and all my female friends and we don't really have the same sort of extracurricular activities and so I, I don't know whether that's just my situation but I find that yeah anecdotally my females have less of this than males <laughs> and I don't know why that is but I think it's so important to have these outlets that is not social media or you know binge watching Netflix or something like that it's actually something that you can put your time and energy into that is rewarding right so coloring knitting spearfishing all the things yeah. <laughs> okay let's get a hobby people and obviously, I just wanted to harp back, actually, because I know we've mentioned it a couple of times now, is the low FODMAP diet. Yes, yes. And if anyone doesn't know who that is or what that is, sorry, do you want to kind of outline a little bit what that involves? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet is a, a temporary diet that we do in irritable bowel syndrome. Um, it's essentially an elimination diet that you do for a period of about four weeks where you eliminate fermentable carbohydrates. And so these fermentable carbohydrates are found in a lot of different healthy foods, which is why we only do this temporarily. Um, and so what we do is we do about a four-week elimination of these fermentable carbohydrates and then one by one reintroduce them to work out what might be the triggers in irritable bowel syndrome for that person because it's um, it's quite a big elimination. So it's not likely that all of the foods that we eliminate are going to be causing um, any symptoms. We want to know which ones it is and then reintroduce all the rest of them because they are from such healthy foods. And the fermentable carbohydrates are also a great source of prebiotics. So the low FODMAP diet is actually almost a low prebiotic diet. So we want to get in 
the, the fermentable carbohydrates or the high FODMAP foods that we can as soon as possible. And it's something that I think is recommended you do with a dietitian or an expert, kind of not that we just go and try ourselves. Kind of yeah, and I would say for that reason that you don't want to do it longer than you need to be doing it. And I've heard of stories of people, you know, being on a low FODMAP diet for years or months and it's not great in terms of your gut microbiome to be on a low FODMAP diet long term. So I think that that's probably the number one reason to be doing it with someone. Uh, but also if you're struggling to um, do it properly because the, the you want to do it, if you're going to do it and you're going to eliminate a whole bunch of foods, you want to do it properly the first time so that you don't have to keep oh, feeding. Do it, yeah. um, and you want to do it quite strictly when you do it. So having the support of a dietitian or, you know, an expert in that area um, can help guide you along that and, you know, make sure that you've got the food options available for yourself to get through it. And obviously we've spoken heaps about gut health today and I'd love to know a little bit more, chat to you a bit more about nutrition in general. And then I wondered if there was any kind of really key um, misconceptions or kind of areas of confusion that you'd love to clear up, I guess, in terms of the nutrition space? I think the biggest thing that I love to clear up is that nutrition doesn't have to be complicated. It can be so, so simple. And if we go back to the basics, it really is that simple. And I know, you know, we, as a dietitian, we go through like five years of uni to, to learn all of the complexities of it. But when it comes back to what do you actually do in order to eat well? The biggest thing I say to people is just forget everything that you've been told. And if you had to go back to the complete basics of what you think that you know is basic nutrition, what would that be? And most people's answers when I ask them this is that, you know, mostly uh, like mostly whole food diet, not stressing out about having the occasional processed foods from time to time, a bit of balance, mo- lots of fruits and veggies. And it's like, there you go. Like yeah. it, we actually do know what to do when it comes to nutrition. It's that there's so much conflicting and confusing information that it's pretty much throwing our thermometer, like our thermostat out. And we think that it's so much more complex than what it needs to be. And there is, you know, times where those complexities might come into play. But on the basic level, nutrition can be so, so simple in terms of just eat mostly whole foods. And I know in your work um, that you also work in with a focus on other areas with women who have endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome and things like that. And what role can nutrition play in issues like that that affect so many women? Yeah, so the endometriosis is a really interesting one. And that's um, what I was explaining earlier when I got into it with the chronic pelvic pain is I was seeing all these women with endometriosis. And what I found, I guess, with nutrition there is that there is such a big overlap with irritable bowel syndrome with endometriosis that addressing the if they have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, addressing that IBS can actually help in terms of just their overall symptomatic experience. Um, from a nutrition perspective with endometriosis, if we're looking at it, we essentially want to be in eating an anti-inflammatory style diet. And that's a word that is thrown about a lot these days. But what it really means is minimal processed foods, mostly whole foods. Um, and I think a really great example of uh, anti-inflammatory diet is the Mediterranean diet. Um, and it's one of the most researched diets in the world. And so I don't even like call it di- – like to call it a diet because I think that word sort of throws, you know, fads about, but it's it's really a way of eating. And I think that that's probably the best way of eating in terms of um, endometriosis. Then if you have got like those IBS style symptoms where your bowels are affected and, you know, bloating and pain and all of those sorts of things, that's not just the sort of endometriosis or pelvic pain. Um, then looking at those specific IBS symptoms, um, symptomatic sort of strategies like the low FODMAP diet can be really beneficial. 
um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, again, another kettle of fish. Um, looking at carbohydrate intake there can be um, a really useful thing because there is insulin resistance that does come with polycystic ovarian syndrome. One big misconception with um, PCOS is that you have to exclude all carbohydrates altogether or you know go on a keto diet and it's completely ridiculous. And again, it's another example of where the research has been completely thrown out of context is that the research is showing that yes, having a slightly lower carbohydrate diet can be beneficial in insulin resistance or in PCOS. That doesn't mean you need to cut out carbohydrates. And it definitely doesn't mean you have to go keto. You can still have, you know, oats and rice and, you know, all sorts of carbohydrate containing foods on a low carbohydrate diet. It just means you're not having excessive quantities of it. And obviously, because like speaking to you and it's so fantastic how much science and things you bring in, you're a big research junkie, huh? <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd. I, no, I, always, great. <laughs> I always hear myself whenever I talk about it, I'm like, oh my God, I just like, I just spoke about science again. Like not everyone's as into it as I am. <laughs> no, I love it. But especially with dietitians, you, you know, you want the science, you want the research. And I'd love to know what you think are some of the most exciting areas in nutrition science at the moment, whether it's in the gut or in general, you know, what kind of makes you go, oh my God, like nerd out. (laughs) So I would definitely say the gut health stuff. Um, It's super complex though, because, and it's, it's a lot of it's over my head as well. When you're looking at like the, you know, gene sequencing and all of that, I, I, I'm not a microbiologist or anything like that or a geneticist. Um, but the other thing I find really interesting is the science around behavior change because that is what we need to know is how do we get people to change their behavior? Because we can have all of this amazing research around all sorts of different topics of nutrition, but if we can't get people to change their behavior, it means nothing. So the science then around behavior change, I think is probably the most important and the most interesting because that's how we make people live healthier lives. And something I guess kind of touching on a similar subject, but I was looking at your Instagram when I was kind of prepping my notes and things for this. And you did a really great post recently, and I'm just going to read out a bit of the caption. So it's controversial is cool, which makes me uncool. When it comes to nutrition, I don't sit on camp A or camp B, nor do I really care if you're camp A or camp B. Maybe that makes me less popular. Maybe people perceive that as a weak or sitting on the fence, but I think it truly defines evidence-based. And I wondered if you could just tell me a bit about that. How does that sum up kind of what you're about? Yeah, so and I, I definitely feel uncool when I, I say that sort of stuff because so many, particularly online, so many people are like, I'm, you know, team low carb or team intuitive eating or team calorie counting or whatever it is. And they have this one system, this one method that they sort of pump out and market and throw, you know, to everyone. And to me, that is not, like I said, evidence-based because what we know is that everyone has a different approach to the way that they should live their life. And there's not one way that's going to work for everyone. So as somebody who is trying to, I guess, guide people through finding their healthiest version of themselves, it means that I need to look at the pros and cons to every situation and where does this fit for one person versus the next person. So one person might find that calorie counting works really well for them. The next person, it might be horrendous for them. Intuitive eating and, and, you know, listening to their body and everything might work really well for one person. One person might have no idea how to listen to their body and need much more support and guidance in terms of that. So I guess Like I said, it it may sound like, you know, you're sort of wishy-washy and you don't know what you're talking about, but I think it means that you do know what you're talking about and that you're willing to fit with everyone because you're not just going, this is the only way to do nutrition or this is the only way to do health because that is not true. 
There's not yeah. one way. Because one size, yeah, like you say, doesn't fit all. No, not at all. Yeah. And so what have you got going on at the moment? So obviously you work in clinic, you've a big online presence too. What's kind of coming up or going on for you work-wise at the moment? So I'm just about in the next sort of month about to launch something I've been working behind the scenes on um, for, I guess, nutrition professionals, so dietitians, nutritionists, and anyone who's really interested in the nutrition research, um, a, a membership site essentially for keeping up to date in nutrition research. I realized because I was reading so much that I should probably be sharing this information with others (laughs) as well. Um, And it was, I guess, one of the biggest problems that I came across when I started to get into the research so much more. I found as a dietitian, once I graduated, you only have so much knowledge and the only way to stay up to date is to keep on top of the research and the only way to become an expert at something is to be continually learning. But the time and energy to put into that, like that's what I do every day and I love it and I wouldn't do it any differently. But for everyone else who are busy running clinics or working in hospitals or, you know, seeing their clients and those sorts of things, how do they keep on top of that? And I was like, well, if I can solve this problem for people and keep them up to date so that we are all sharing the same evidence-based message and we are all, I guess, yeah, sharing a consistent message around nutrition. Hopefully, that will mean less confusion for um, people in the in the public. And then, what about personally as well? Because I know we were talking earlier about, um, I think before we started recording, but about you kind of starting a recovery process from injury and things like that. And yes. what else is kind of going on per, um, personally for you this year? So I'm trying to get back into running again um, soon. I guess with my health and fitness, my sort of uh, I'm start like I said before, I'm starting fresh with this now. I've decided to go right back to basics, and you know I'm doing my physio twice a week, and I'm just nailing the rehab and everything at the moment, so that I. Can can start to build up and really get back into all aspects of training. So I love doing strength training and Muay Thai and running. And for me to be able to do that, I really need to start with the basics and, you know, work on like, you know, the boring glute exercises and those sorts of things just to make sure that I don't injure myself in the future and, you know, build up the strengths that I need to get me through my life. I like that you're into Muay Thai as well. That's really cool. That's a hobby. Yes, yes. And so that's what I decided is that I needed a hobby and that was going to be my hobby. It's just, um, it's not very good on your hips when you've got dodgy hips. So (laughs) that's why I need to get the foundations done first so that then I can get into my Muay Thai as a hobby um, rather than a sport. And that was something that was really big for me is I didn't want to see Muay Thai as a sport or a physical activity. I wanted to see it purely as a hobby. And it is actually the best hobby I find because it's so intense in the sense that you have to be constantly switched on about what, you know, what you're doing, what's coming next. There's so much brain power that goes into like remembering the combos that you're doing and those sorts of things or not getting punched in the face (laughs) that you can't think about anything else. And I'm so switched on. My brain is just pinging from one place to the next that I struggle to switch off. And Muay Thai is honestly the only time that I fully focus on one thing at a time. And I try meditation and everything and I still am constantly bringing myself back to my breath and everything. But Muay Thai I can't have another thought about anything else other than Muay Thai when I'm doing it, which is why I love it. Because you will get punched in the face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's immediate consequences. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I'd love for you just to sum up for me, is there a – what wellness trend do you wish you would see and a one you'd love to see the back of? One wellness trend I wish I, I, wish I could see. I guess – I guess I'm going to tie them both together is that I wish that we would 
stop trying to make nutrition more complicated than what it needs to be for the average person and that everyone understood how simple it is in terms of it's not easy to make behavior change, but it is simple. The strategies that you need to put in place to eat well. Um, and I guess then, yeah, one thing that I'd like to see the end of is actually, and one thing we haven't probably discussed yet is the um, sharing of unsolicited information online is something that I think is quite damaging to people because it's adding to that confusion. So we have so many people online sharing nutrition information that don't know the nuances of nutrition and the individual variances there. And it's damaging in the sense that it's creating so much confusion for people, which is then leading to people not taking action because they're so confused. So what do you think if someone out there listening to this has a nutrition issue or concern or anything and want to talk about, who are the kind of resources and the experts that we should be going to? So I think if you have got like an, an issue in terms of nutrition, um, your GP is obviously a good starting place just because you want to rule out anything serious if there is a nutrition issue there, sorry, a, a medical issue mm. that's sort of compounding it. Um, but, you know, somebody that you trust in terms of a nutritionist or dietitian um, is a good place to start there. I always suggest with these things is to do your research before you go to someone as well because within every field there's going to be people who are good at what they do and not so good at what they do and there's going to be people who believe in certain things as well. So um, get to know the person if you can before you go and see them. So, you know, have a look at their website and what they're about and does that align with you because there will be people that align with you and there will be people that don't align with you and finding somebody that you align with, whatever it is. Like, you know, if you're going to see a psychologist, you might have to try two or three before you actually find somebody that fits. And it's probably the same with nutrition as well Is you know, you need to find somebody who meshes well with your philosophy and the way that you want to approach. You can't shove a square peg into a round hole. Love that. Perfect <laughs> note to end on, Marika. Thank you so much like, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And My yeah, pleasure. it's been, I've never chatted so much about gut health and I love it. And yeah, that's fantastic. Thank Good. you. No, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Women's Health Uninterrupted. We hope you enjoyed the episode and found something inspiring to take into your day. If you'd like to leave a review, we would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on an episode. For more from us, pick up the latest copy of Women's Health magazine or check out womenshealth.com.au.